Welcome back to Text Cather to everybody. Uh, I'm your host, your only host, because there is no co-host. Jason has been text communicated from Text Catheter, and that basically means he's no longer allowed on the show. Uh, he keeps abandoning us to, to hang out with this family that he's got. And I'm like, I'm your family. What are you doing? What are you, you know, he keeps wanting to hang out with this girl he calls his wife. And I'm like, Shh, come on, bro. No girls is that, allowed, man. Is that what he calls avoiding Babylon? <clears throat> yeah, that's what he calls. <laughs> Uh, uh, hey, I'd I'd let Jason stick up for himself, but he's not here. So, you know. <laughs> exactly, um, he he uh, he lost that ability uh, of, his, <laughs> of his own volition. So we're gonna talk about Blessed Carl of Austria. This is such a okay. So here's why I like this topic. First of all, I I'm new to this devotion uh, of this particular saint. You guys have a lot more experience with. Uh, blessed Carl. But lately I've been thinking a lot about the first world war. I've been reading, I've been listening to like a lot of lectures online from the U S world war one Memorial and museum has got some amazing, uh, list like one hour talks on YouTube. If you ever want to get in and listen to that stuff, but I'm thinking a lot about the first world war and the tragedy that unfolded, uh, from 1914 to 1918, blessed Carl of Austria will play. <clears throat> he, he's sort of, a lone voice of reason in an age of absolute madness. And I kind of sense that we're in an age of madness right now where voices of reason are we're not really listening to those people. Those people are kind of a downer and they don't really let us participate in our collective fantasies and things like that. So what a great topic to talk about. But before we do that, we do have a tradition on Trex Catheter where we pray uh, real quick. We're going to say a quick prayer to the Holy Ghost. Please join along with us and uh, hope that we have a fruitful and edifying discussion uh, with our guests, Connor and Trevor from Tridentine Brewing, who I totally didn't introduce. I just started talking and that was rude. We'll get into it. We'll get it. Well, I'll give you guys an introduction and a plug here in just a minute. In nomine Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Veni Sancti Spiritus, repletur corda fidelia, metui amores in ei signi macende. Imiditi Spiritum tuum et creabuntur, et renovabis facium tere. Oremos. Deus qui corda fidelium Sancti Spiritus, illustrazione docuisti. De nobis in iorum Spiritu recta sapere, et de eo semper consolazione gadere. Per Christum Dominum nostrum. Amen. Venomini Patris et Fili, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Connor... You guys know Connor from Plotlines. If you don't know Plotlines, you need to get over there and subscribe to that channel immediately. Um, Connor is my brother from another mother, my wartime consigliere, uh, fellow Irishman from up the Illinois way. Um, Trevor is the uh, is the, the the boss over there. Well, he's not the boss. His dad's the boss, actually, <laughs> at Trident Team Brewing. And uh, we've had him on the show before, but it's been a long time. Both these guys are certified friends of the show. Connor, Trevor, welcome to Text Catherine. And uh, it's great to have you guys. Oh, Thank thanks you, for having me. I don't actually think I've been on the show. I like, you know, I think you've been on the show. I don't think so. Somebody, you know, leave a comment and whether or not you've seen me on the show. But I mean, we've been on shows together, but uh, you've been on my show a bunch of times. But I don't, I don't actually think I've been on your show. Your well, uh, co your co-host keeps uh, disappearing. Yeah, he's good like that, isn't he? <laughs> I've been on both shows. So you have I'm been on happy both to shows. Say. Uh, it's been a while on, since I've been on here on Text Cathedra, but uh, I've been on Connor's show a couple of times. So 
great great to be back with both of you at the same time we've got some exciting things going on in tridentine brewing that we're going to talk about since the last time that we've talked and uh so i can't wait to get into that but the topic tonight the topic of tonight's talk is our our our, our buddy here charles the first of austria um now i know that uh over at tridentine brewing you guys have named a couple of beers after princess zita and uh blessed carl of austria am i correct about that Do I, and then that's right mark yeah i got we got our carl our carl beer which is called uh hopsburg that you can see right. here um, right. that's our vienna lager and then i don't have it with me here but it is our impressive imperial red ale uh, which is for Emperor Zita. So yeah, we've got two beers in honor in honor of both of them. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Charles I of Austria inherited the throne of the Habsburg, the the, the throne of Austria Hungary after the death of Franz Joseph I, right right in the middle of the First World War. Um, I, now, the the First World War, um, if, for the United States, for the Americans, it's kind of the forgotten war. And it's kind of seen as like the easy war. Because we didn't really, I mean, we there, I think we lost something like a couple hundred thousand uh, men in that war. So it's not, not, a, not a nothing. But it doesn't compare to the millions of, of, of casualties that the Europeans suffered in that war. French, German, English, and... What was what was surprising to me about that war was the uh, the stalemate of it and the willingness of all the alliances to continue fighting, regardless of how many men it was going to kill. And it seemed like the objective of the war was to continue the war. It wasn't really to win anything, it, it, you know. And it, we just have to keep fighting because the war demands it. <laughs> prestige, right. prestige. What do you mean by prestige? Go on. It, it's a, a national, it would be a national disgrace to lose it. That, that, that was, mm. that's one of the reasons why it went on for so long. Uh, because by that time things had been come not so much about land though, that was important, but uh, for most of the people, it was, you know, a national nationalism was guiding foreign policy in the way that it basically said we have to show that we are better than everybody else in order to win this war and also i would say we as americans we basically got a participation ribbon sure like that, that, that that's basically uh the best way to describe our our outcome uh or our participation we we just got a ribbon we didn't actually you know, we didn't get any medals for winning or anything like that, though uh, Wilson had a big part in dictating uh, the peace of Versailles, mm. uh, which we'll probably get into. Yeah. Now, I've actually been fortunate enough. I've stood at the corner in Sarajevo where Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. And you would think that there would be a monument there or a plaque or something. There's nothing there. Um, well, I mean, it's in Bosnia. Why? Like, they're not going to yeah. care about an Austrian archduke. Yeah. And what, and, and that's something that I want to get into too, is the Austria Hungarian empire, because it's the weirdest little empire 
it's nothing like the other imperial uh, presences in Europe at that time. It, it's so much, it's so different and it's differences. I think, well, I, I'd love to get you guys' take on it because it seems to be this simultaneously the, its greatest strength and its greatest weakness at the same time is its, is its multi-ethnicity and its, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's dual nature. It's both Austrian and Hungarian and it's both European and Slavic and it's, it's got, but it's got an imperial structure too that is uh, that's, you know, it, I don't know. It's kind of its own animal. It's nothing else like it in Europe, and it, and it's interesting because that empire and something happening to it sort of starts the war, but then they sort of become like a non-factor in in the fighting, at least from from my brief knowledge of it. Is that you guys' understanding? Yeah, I mean, I I think that it in regards to the war. I mean, over time, when you had first of all, they were more of a junior partner with. Germany right. in, in the war in that particular alliance, uh, and Germany took more, came more to the fore. Um, but yeah, Austria did almost become a little bit stuck because of Italy joining the war. So with with Italy joining the war, Austria is fighting on on two fronts, and because America, I mean, with our American history, our American lens, we always think of the Western Front. We think of in France, the fighting mainly. Uh, because that's where American soldiers were. Uh, mm -hmm. But with Italy joining, Italy was actually uh, allied with Austria and Germany, which would happen in World War II uh, again. But Italy actually broke off because they were secretly offered some land, Austrian land, if they were to fight against the Austrians. So they switched sides early on in the conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and that really tied up a lot of Austria's resources um, so that they're fighting the Russians on the Eastern Front and you know, what is now Ukraine and, of course, the, the Italians in the Alps. So it really tied them up um, and became more of a non-factor um, for us. But I will also say in regards to the empire, it, it really was a successor to the Holy Roman Empire um, I mean, it really was a Holy Roman Empire. I know they changed the name, yeah. but that's more of a technicality uh, in, in many ways. Uh, and so that particular empire was really built on more on marriage and family versus, you know, conquest, like we see with some of the other empires, like with Germany. You know, Germany was a, a creation of Bismarck more than more than anything else. Um, and raw imperial might and the the militarism involved with that, whereas Austria-Hungary wasn't. It was really marriages and building building it more organically, uh, acquiring land. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're right; it is it is an interesting uh, amount of territory and the the peoples that it brought together. Which, to your point, Mark, I think it definitely did it did contribute to some of the the strife uh, of the different peoples. Um, and maybe we could talk about this in a little while, I guess, how Carl tied in, how Franz Ferdinand tied in, how they were going to change the empire a bit, uh, how they proposed to do so. Uh, they never really came to fruition. That probably would have eased a lot of the tensions. Um, but yeah, it wasn't as nationalistic, right? Because it had all these people and it. it wasn't, you know, one united, you know, German people or Slavic people, all they all had to come together to work together. Um, so it wasn't quite the same um, nationalist fervor that Connor was talking about, at least in that particular empire. 
Anyway, sorry. Uh, go ahead, Connor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'd like to just say a few things about that. The I would say it's actually three fronts, not um, not just two, because there wasn't just an eastern front in Russia. There was also Serbia, and that took a good while, and then Italy in the south, and then Russia in the east. So basically, the structure of Austria-Hungary is that it is is vulnerable from a uh, from a geographical standpoint especially in this type of war. So fighting three fronts is, is incredibly difficult. The, and I don't think you could say that they were junior partners right off the bat. I think that came over, over time that happened. And as basically the German military became more dominant than the Kaiser in Germany, it became more of a, you know, sort of a junior partner status because when you have two emperors and they're basically leading things, they have a lot of respect for each other's office or th throne or, you know, that type of thing. But when you have these, these military or these generals that are basically in charge of most of the decision-making in Germany, which is what happens is basically the Kaiser is a, completely ignored for a long stretch of time. Basically the attitude between Germans and the Austro-Hungarian army becomes you guys are lesser and you, you know, we're going to make the dom dominant decisions. And also when it comes to sort of Franz Ferdinand, I guess what I was, what I said about, uh, um, Bosnia not ha that not having any um what is it a uh, statue or a placard or something commemorating his death as you said it's actually i imagine the politicians of bosnia uh don't want something like that but actually franz ferdinand was uh, very popular amongst the slavs in mm. uh the in the austro-hungarian empire and then when you think of Austria-Hungary, it's it, we have to think of it as two different states, two different countries, basically. You have the Kingdom of Austria, or sorry, Kingdom of Hungary, and you have the Empire of Austria, which is basically uh, a part of uh, Slovenia, all of Austria, uh, what is now Czechia, and southern poland so that is basically what uh, the empire of austria looks like and that i you could say i think is a remnant of the holy roman empire but the kingdom of hungary is by no stretch by no stretch the uh, a successor to the holy roman empire it is of its own entity and that's why there's this uh this difference in tension between the Hungarian kingdom and the Austrian empire. And that basically sets it up where it's ready for collapse. It, it's always been a interesting thing to me because I've, I've studied the Habsburgs from basically their beginning until their fall. And it always really confused me how something like the, uh, this empire that you see in the map of uh, World War One, 
how it just dissolves utterly so quickly at the end. And it really is this, the fact that basically these, th these uh, entities only have a shared military that is the, and shared uh, um, monarch. And that's all they have in common, basically. Other well, than I know that, that yeah, that was always that was always Hitler's complaint about the Austria-Hungarian Empire. He was he was born into the Austria-Hungarian Empire, obviously. Serves in the German army, develops his racialized theory of the nation based on the what he considered to be the failures of the Austria-Hungarian Empire. And his his whole thing is saying, look, this is what a state with multi-ethnic, uh, uh, you know, ethnicities and things like that all trying to work together. This is what it produces: just catastrophe. And therefore, if you want to have a, a true Reich, you know, one people, one folk, one Fuhrer, and everybody's got to be the same, you know, that's how you determine who's really a part of the nation is who's a part of the race. You know, he develops this sort of theory based on his, uh, his experiences or, or his perception, I should say, of, of the failures of the Austro-Hungarian empire. But one of the things that you're bringing up, Connor, and I think this is a great introduction to Blessed Carl, is this is the world that Blessed Carl is is sort of, he comes to maturity in this very complicated European landscape of empires that are um, in many ways allied with one another, but the ally, the alliances can be tenuous at times. The politics are are. are different than what we, you know, we grew up in the post-World War II age where Europe is basically run by a consensus of economic experts uh, to ensure that wars don't happen anymore. You know, we can talk about whether that was a good idea or not on a different show, I suppose. But I get the sense that Carl is um, unique in, in, amongst the, the, the Habsburgs of his day, at least, in that I, while I'm sure the Habsburgs and Connor, you could probably tell me this better than anybody uh, are Catholic. Carl seems to be unique in his piety and his devoutness and his devotion to the faith. Is that, would you say that that's correct? Well, I'd say there tends to be always a handful of Habsburgs that are quite devout. Mm -hmm. And then there are, there tend to be a handful that aren't though. They always give lip service uh, to, uh, that's one thing they they tend to do. I mean, his mother was very devout, so he, he very much got his religion from his mother, and he got his charisma from his father. His mm. father was the complete opposite. His father was a uh, was um, Trevor. What's the right word? An adulterer. Oh, there you uh, go. Bland. Yeah, he was he was um, notorious. Let's put it that way. His his father ended up dying of syphilis so that, that tells you um kind of what his father was up to um he followed yeah. in the tradition of henry the eighth there yeah yeah which no sorry go no ahead, please go ahead go ahead i was gonna say because it's something that i was recently brought to my attention i think it was something that charles coulomb brought up uh, at a recent conference that i was at in clear creek for empress zeta um and Usually we think of Blessed Carl as, well, I do, but, you know, most people will think of Blessed Carl as, you know, a, a, an excellent father, an excellent husband, and a, a leader, political leader. Uh, and that's kind of where the main devotions are. But he also brought up the fact that he's also a great model for 
people that grow up in broken homes, actually, because that's exactly what he grew up in. Because uh, while his parents never got a, got a divorce for anything, I think fairly early on they ended up having to separate because of, of his the father's ways. You know, his mother couldn't be around that and have Carl around that. Um, but Carl still loved his father. He still, you know, would visit his father. He was there with him you know, would visit him in the hospital while he was dying and everything. Um, you know, so Carl never had any, you know, hatred for his father, uh, even though his father made things, you know, very difficult on him and him and his mother. Um, so that's just something to, to think about as well. And something I, you know, I was, you know, God bless me. I, I didn't have to endure anything like that in my own childhood. Um, but I think for people that, and quite a few people do grow up in, difficult situation yeah so that's just something to, to think about as well that carl's a, a really good you know role model or, or you know saint to pray for i know he's not a saint yet but blessed to pray to um you know for help when struggling through situations like that yeah for sure because i think you know there's a lot of uh, pop psychology out there that you're basically going to be exactly like your parents you're you're sort of been a you know, a human being is just an amalgamation of his exterior of exterior forces around him. But at the end of the day, I really do believe that it comes down to a personal choice to uh, to turn away from sin or to steer into the skid, as they say. And um, this is a this is a great example of a person who, let's face it, being being royalty at that time in that place there was probably no shortage of opportunities to embrace evil, okay, in all of the ways that Satan loves to offer that. Um, and yet, in spite of that, and it's, it's interesting, we're recording this today on the Feast of St. Louis, King of France. There are examples in the, in the Christian church, in the Catholic church, of monarchs or men of extreme, who, who may have had a, a lot of wealth or political and worldly power, who in spite of that, uh, embrace Christ, turn away from sin and devote themselves to leading lives of holiness and piety. Um, as, and, and, you know, we are talking about how Carl, uh, will inherit the throne. His father will die, uh, in 1917 or 18. No, his father dies much earlier. In 1906. Than that. I thought his, it was, uh, there were, his uh, grand uncle is the one that dies. Right. Okay. That that's he right. Inherits the throne from in, uh, is it? It's either 1917 or 1918. Yeah. So it's right 17. towards the end of the war. And by this time, obviously, World War One. And it's funny because from the days of the July crisis of 1914, the common consensus seems to have be this is going to be a pretty short affair. It's going to be short, it's going to be decisive, and it's going to be the war to end all wars um, by 1917 at least, for sure by 1918. I don't think Europe had even remotely prepared for the carnage that would ensue. And here comes Carl I of Austria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as you can say, the sort of lead allies with with Germany. And he's looking for peace and he's actively working for a peaceful solution to the war. Connor, can you speak a little more on the details of that? I, I don't 
I, I'm new to this devotion, so I, and I'm glad that you've done a little bit more research so for, on this than I have. So peace regarding specifically, or what? Uh, his his efforts in in trying to either I, and I I get the sense that these were backdoor channels that he's sort of exploring peace with, but I don't know ex specifically how he's doing that. So the bet so there's two things. There's a front there's a front door uh, that he explores, and that's uh, Benedict the fifteenth, I think. Uh, Benedict the fifteenth proposes or you know basically pushes for peace amongst all the leaders and he is and uh blessed charles is the only leader to support benedict the 15th's uh call for peace and his attempts at peace and then his other attempt at peace is through the french uh but and specifically through his uh brother-in-law uh brother-in-laws i think i think two of them but uh Prince Sixtus of Bourbon Parma, which is uh, his wife Zita's uh, brother, is I don't think I think he originally is a member of the Belgian army because he cannot because as a royal he is not permitted by French law to be in the French military. Right, but he he sort of. Um, during the time, so the French Republic is a bit uh, chaotic. So in the beginning of the war, I believe there is a very anti-Austro-Hungarian uh, regime in France. And then in the middle of the war, the pre prime minister or president or what have you changes. And it's a little bit of a more friendly uh, leader in charge of France and basically he creates or he connects via Sixtus, uh, Prince Sixtus, uh, basically in negotiations of how to make peace separate from Germany because mm -hmm. Germany is not, not interested in making peace in at this time. I mean, one of the things is like whenever the central powers are interested in making peace, the allies aren't. And whenever the allies are interested in making peace, for the most part, the Germany is not. So Sixtus basically communicates with both the Br British and the French, but the French and the British can't make an agreement with because they, they made a deal that they won't make peace without Italy's consent and Italy won't give consent unless they hand over territory. And it becomes known as I believe the Sixtus affair when it comes out and it, it's a whole debacle for everyone. And uh, I believe the French government falls apart as well. It, uh, it ha gets hand handed back to a, a more hostile party. And that basically is the, the closing of what would be a, a piece that might have lasted. Well, so, okay. So then in 1918, uh, the powers are, are able to reach an agreement at Versailles. And One of the, an agreement well, is a little bit of a, uh, the 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 victors make an agreement that's what i meant yeah yeah the, the victors um 
And I've always kind of in my mind thought of uh, Austria-Hungary's main rival in this in this weird political sphere, the Ottoman Empire. Do you think that that's a fair statement? It's odd. It, it's 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 its main sort of political rival in that in that sphere would be like the the uh, the Ottomans. I don't know if that's probably true or not, but I, you, the the Ottomans aren't. It, it's it's complicated because. Once Austria made made an enemy out of Russia in the eighteen, uh, what I can't remember what the year was it, during the um, Crimean War, when uh, Austria made an enemy out of Russia in the Crimean War, it basically made it impossible for Austria to get back on uh, the Russians' good side. So, and the on, and the only ally and the best ally in that situation is the ottomans so by default it's by default okay it's, it's okay. not really out of if, um so is it odd it's a little odd but we when the the ottoman empire is basically a walking corpse at this point hmm. it's not hmm. a threat to anybody it's just be it's just ready for collapse at any point yeah yeah and then, and at Versailles, one of the, um, how, how, so here's my question, because I know that one of the things that will happen as the, um, the abolishment of the Habsburg throne, however, unlike Nicholas II in Russia, Karl never abdicates, but his abdication is sort of, it's not de jure, but it's de facto, right? It sort of. Can you explain the process of, of how he loses the throne and then what happens to him in the years following the close of the war? Because I'm a little unclear on, to, on to exactly what that story is. Either Trevor, do you do you have are you familiar with this history? Yeah, uh, Mark. So when he did when Carl was was basically was basically forced when you know he, he was forced really before even uh versailles to really you know de facto as, as you said abdicate he he never, he never abdicated he made that that clear but the fact that he he renounced active participation in the government the day-to-day -day of the government is what he he wrote down mm -hmm. uh but he did specifically say i'm not renouncing the throne and uh, ba basically with a clause i can come back whenever i want <laughs> i just okay. you know i'm I, i'm leaving i'm forced to vienna had had basically fallen uh, you know the republic had had been declared and so that's that's really what happened in that case um and so yeah as a as a part of uh all, all that happening and uh, the, the British basically were able to, well, they, they escorted him out. So the, the Republic as well wanted the Habsburgs gone. So the British were able to uh, help, help him escape or get over to Switzerland. Uh, I don't know, Connor, did I get all that right? I don't know if the British were involved initially. So I'll just give, give a few more details and give more a little bit of scope what's going on. So uh, just an, an FYI regarding uh, the the complications with the Russians as well. Nicholas, the one of the problems with Nicholas was uh, he he want he sort of would have liked to abdicate earlier, and 
he, but he would have liked to abdicate to his brother or cousin or something like that. But his cousin wouldn't wouldn't allow or wouldn't accept it unless basically he um, he was elected or approved by uh, the Russian people or some sort of some way, which was not going to work. Basically, that was the collapse of Russia. But the reason Nicholas was so hesitant and uh, abdicating be- was because his son it. Uh, Nobody knew this, but he was a hemophiliac, and the fear right. was he he would get it would be the death of him. Which ironically is just it's the death of him, no matter what. His whole family is murdered uh, right. by the Soviets, anyways. There's no question about that. Anyway, so that's just the stage. You know, the Romanovs are murdered, and that's in this 1917. That's that's before the world world the war comes to an end, and then. Versailles is more about Germany. That's that's more of the focus of Versailles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, they say you have the Kaiser, ha- the German Kaiser has to go. The German Kaiser goes. But with Austria, there's a lot more chaos going on. There are, you know, sort of the, the Austro-Hungarian military has collapsed. Hungary has basically declared itself independent uh i think it was it's actually um i believe Ed, edward Habsburg's uh ancestor his uh i don't know if it's great grandfather something like that basically uh can't hold things together because he's basically the representative of the royal family in hungary i i can't remember if he sort of lets things go you know, on purpose of some sort, or he can't control things anymore. But basically, the Hungarians won out. But the Hungarians also go into basically a war, a separate war, where they're fighting both uh, the uh, new, like, Slovaks, and then they're also fighting, uh, well, Czechoslovakia, and then they're fighting um, the Romanians, and they're fighting the Serbs, and I think they are fighting Yugoslavia at the same time. So mm-hmm. basically, in this collapse, there's this. All of these countries are getting made through blood, basically, because sure. because there's also this treaty, and then that ends with the t- Treaty of Trianon, which basically shrinks Hungary into a preposterous size that is basically an insult. It's an insult to Hungary. Hungary is Hungary becomes ba- almost what it is today. I think it might, yeah, about about what it is today. It becomes incredibly small. A lot of Hungarians actually live outside of Hungary, even though supposedly uh, the point of the of Woodrow Wilson is basically uh, all the nationalities will get their own state, even though a sizable amount of Hungarians are living outside of Hungary and are minorities in a bunch of different uh, states outside. And then there is only one remaining field marshal in the, um, out in, uh, he's, uh, I think he's a Serb. He's a Serb, which is interesting. So you have some Serbs that are in Austria and you have some Serbs fighting against Austria from Serbia. And there is a there's a funny little situation during the war where it's basically they 
yell out basically the Serbs say, you know, we are Serbians. We will never surrender. And then the, the Austrian Serbians yell back. We are Serbians. We will never surrender. <laughs> oh, man. It's just like the, yeah. the, the ridiculous of it is just ridiculousness of it is hilarious. But this Serbian field marshal uh, basically sends a communique to the emperor in Vienna and basically says, I have an army. If you tell me to, I will come back and put things right in, in Vienna because Vienna is basically in the middle of a semi-revolution by uh, the socialists. Mm -hmm. The socialists are basically taking over in Vienna, and that's what you get. Eventually, the, uh, a socialist government comes to power in Vienna. And, and what Trevor was talking about, Trevor was talking about the British helping out. So in order for not the same thing to happen to Emperor Nicholas or Tsar Nicholas, Mm -hmm. um, George the fifth sends a um, sends a colonel Colonel Strut I think his name is he yeah. is did you say this Trevor I didn't say his name no okay. yeah no, go ahead I didn't add any of the details and it's a good story Colonel Strut is basically sent from England he is a Catholic interesting enough as well so you have an, an English Catholic, uh, I think, who is all, who's sort of an adventurer, kind of. You know, he I think he might have been in Africa or stuff like that on, you know, adventures and stuff like that. So he's kind of this, you know, this uh, stereotypical uh, English uh, adventurer, which is really interesting because, you know, like, it's cool to have a story where th this all connects. But Colonel Strutt arrives in... Um, in Austria and also not to mention and his, or his job is to get blessed Carl out of Austria with, you know, with his head still on, on his head and not to mention back up a little bit. The reason Austria and Hungary give up their, their monarch is because the United States basically says and the allies in general says we will we'd rather you starve than allow the Habsburgs to still remain on the throne so they were threatening to blockade uh and basically starve the population unless uh the Habsburgs were to be gone and is this because of is this because of World War One or what is what is what is the specific beef with the Habsburgs in particular that leads to that? I mean that that seems like a pretty extreme. It's probably Wilson, right? Connor, yeah, like Wil Wilson's Wil points. Wilson believes everybody, all ethnicities, need to have their own country. Yeah. So yeah. Austria Hungary is basically an abomination, according to him. Mm -hmm. uh, even though it's are it's a successful multi-ethnic state. And I mean, it is successful because the only thing that is un that is unsuccessful is it in war. I don't think we, I don't think we look at states and just purely look at, okay, did they get conquered? Does that make it a successful state? Or do we look at peacetime and say, okay, how was it for the people? You know, what were their principles? What, what were their goals? What, were they an ordered society? 
I would say you, you have a much greater ordered society than you would in many other places. But good point. Pe but people look at it and be like, okay, they lost these wars. Because the thing is with Austria-Hungary, the, the military for Austria-Hungary and the Austrians, the Habsburgs have never viewed war as a way of conquering your enemies. That has never been the motive of war with uh, with Austria-Hungary mm -hmm. or with the Habsburgs. The motive has always been to just maintain the family, the maintenance of the family and their peoples. Mm. That is the pure motivation of the of Austria-Hungary. That uh, I mean, there might be some moments when you probably could point to that maybe are inconsistent. But when you can point, but you know, that, that basically proves the rule, you know, sure, sure. and then, so basically Wilson wants this Wilson wants Hungary to be its own thing. It wants Austria to be its own thing because from what I can tell, if Austria had retained its Habsburg monarchy, so would Hungary. And then if, if Hungary had, then probably so would Czechoslovakia. And if uh, Czechoslovakia would have, Croatia probably wouldn't have broken off. Basically, the whole thing wouldn't have collapsed if there wasn't this um, this fear or this uh, this this threat of starvation. Yeah, and I think also Wilson has got this this very American view of democracy as the cure for everything. Um, if, if, if you give people free and fair elections and give them you know, uh, assemblies in which they can elect representatives, then basically all of Europe will be like the United States. And I mean, this is sort of the, the problem we ran into in Iraq in 2003, right? We, we, can just, we, we can just bring democracy to people who've never had it before. That's not part of their political tradition. And that will ensure that wars don't happen anymore. And Unfortunately, I would argue that this philosophy would lead to a war 20 years later um, that would be even more destructive and, and, uh, and lead to ideologies that were even worse and more destructive than imperialism. Um, you know, your, people, so anyway. Your, what you're describing is, is um, perfectly summed up in this, this, this story about uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt visited Vienna uh, on one of his trips. I don't remember mm. if it was as president or just as, you know, an ambassador or just because he was, he could. And he visited Franz Josef, Blessed Charles's uh, predecessor. Mm. And he, uh, he looked around and he was really confused because he, he didn't understand uh, monarchy and he didn't understand, uh, you know, what an emperor does. So he basically asked, like, what is your purpose? What, like, what are you here for? Like, what, what, what are you even doing? And uh, Franz Joseph responded with, to protect my people from their politicians. <laughs> yeah. Fair point. Yeah. So but back to, uh, back to Colonel Strutt, Colonel Strutt comes down and he basically, uh, is he has to work with the new prime minister Carl Renner, who basically betrayed he betrayed Blessed Charles uh, in order to become the new prime minister of 
of this new German. It's actually interesting. It's the German Republic of Austria. That's what it's called. Okay. Uh, and that's what it was until basically uh, the uh, Anschluss. It, it had always... name, wait, what was his name again? Karl Renner. Oh, so, that's eerily similar to a modernist theologian whose name was Karl Rahner, who's yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's similarly a, who was similarly a snake, but anyway, different kind um, of German. Yeah, uh, but, <laughs> but anyways, and also it's funny, you know, Karl's the same name, so it's basically Charles Renner. You know, the, it's the yeah, same; they have the is. same name, so it's just How that's kind of funny. But anyways, he's his uh, he's his Judas basically. So Renner is the ultimate snake because he both. He betrayed his country to the so to uh, in order to become prime minister. Then he betrayed his country to the Nazis, and then he betrayed his country to the communists mm. in order to become prime or uh, president. Yeah. And now he has a statue of there's statues of Renner uh, in Austria. Yeah. How 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 apropos, right? I mean, he's he's the ultimate traitor of the you know 1900s. He could he could he he actually the Nazis didn't even trust him. Like he he wasn't he, the Nazis or he tried to betray or he did betray, but he he tried to hand himself over as like some use of the Nazis, and the Nazis were like, yeah, I don't think so. You're not trustworthy enough for this like we don't want you yeah but but for the communists you know that's a different story anyway so he, renner uh basically wants to uh force blessed charles into abdicating and us charles will not abdicate and colonel strutt basically has no power anyways like he has he has no real authority he's just kind of there as an emissary of the british mm -hmm. and he basically uh walk us uh, walks into uh the office of renner and is carrying around a um i think it's a telegram or an order of some sort and he's basically you know he basically tells renner you need to release uh charles emperor charles at once so he can leave and he will be given proper proper farewell or the blockade will resume and you will not have food mm. and colonel strutt has no power to do this he he has really he's carrying around nothing he doesn't have any authority to do this but renner being a pathetic man uh just caves he basically, you know, says, fine, he can leave. And then uh, Blessed Charles leaves on the train on a train from Austria to Switzerland. And that's where he stays until he uh, well, he go he visits Hungary once and then tries to restore his kingdom the uh, second time where he is again betrayed uh, by another so-called supposed loyal uh, leader. And then he ends up in, in Madeira where he uh, dies his uh, Por Portugal right martyrdom. Hmm? Is that Portugal? Is that right? Or yeah. Madeira Spain? is an Island in the middle of, or not in the middle of the Eastern part of the Atlantic. It's not that close to Portugal, but it's uh, it is, it is part of Portugal. 
Okay. And he will live there until, let's see, when he dies. 23, in, I think. Yeah, 1922. He so he, he, never, he never lived to see, thank God, the, the, the results of the dissolution of his empire and the, the ideology. Well, the, the, the full, he, he lived long enough to see the horrors in Russia, although not to their fullest extent, but then, of course, the horrors that would envelop Germany uh, during the Second World War. So the communist he, did take over Hungary for a period of time. So he did, okay. he did experience uh, one of the, maybe it's the first uh, communist takeover of Hungary. There's been a few. Yeah. And so he, but his, his offspring, his children, or at least Otto, I know is uh, sort of famous. Tell us about Otto, uh, Trevor. I know you, you, you've done a little bit of this research. I know you will, you know, some of this history. Yeah, so I mean, with, with Otto, um, of course, his so in exile uh, after Carl dies, uh, Zeta's story and the family story is is really really quite interesting. So, um, in a, before Carl dies, Carl says to Zeta that the Spanish king uh, Alfonso the Thirteenth, I think, is going to help her out. And out of the blue, he said this, and she had no idea. She's like, "How how is that going to happen?" Like we don't have any communication with them. Carl dies, and then uh, I think that there's a communication from the Spanish that said we're, we're going to come and we're going to pick up Zeta <laughs> and the family. And I think the British actually there there's a bit of a threat because the British said, "Well, if you go pick them up, then we're going to have have a war on our hands." And the Spanish said, "No, it doesn't matter. We're sending a battleship. We're we're picking her up in the family." And when Zeta got to the Spanish court. Uh, the king said, I don't know what it was, but I, I had a dream with my whole family being basically executed in a revolution. And I was basically told in the dream, if you don't take care of Zeta and the family, this is what's going to be your fate. <laughs> so wow. uh, he he took care, took care of them for a, for a while and so they lived in Spain um, for, for a short time, you know, for a period of maybe like 10 years or so. Uh, but the family, Zita could tell that Spain was falling apart. This was before the Spanish civil war, uh, that raged in the, in the 1930s. And so she decided I'm going to pick up and leave. They moved to Belgium. And I think from there they stayed until right at, at the outset of world war two. And they got out just in time, actually, uh, before they got captured by the Nazis because Hitler didn't like them very much. Uh, so they, they were able to make their successful escape to um, to Canada and then the United States eventually. But uh, Zeta was head of the household until Carl was able to, I'm sorry, Otto was able to, to take over. And so Otto um, you know, ser did seriously take his, you know, being head of the family very, very seriously, really also did try to reclaim the throne. Um, for example, he even had conversations, I believe, with with Churchill during World War II that, you know, if he could take over for Austria or Hungary as the monarch, that he could help to, you know, stabilize the country and whatnot. And Churchill is actually open to it, I believe, but the rest of his government wasn't. So Otto did try as well to reclaim the throne, but unfortunately that was not successful. But Otto was um, very still much involved in in politics as well. So he served, for example, in the uh, European 
Parliament as part of the European Union, uh, representing, I believe, Bavaria, uh, a part of Bavaria, because he wasn't really allowed back home either because of the anti-Habsburg laws on the books in Austria. Um, but yeah, he was he was very very faithful Catholic, uh, and did his best to um, live up to the Habsburg name. I know all the way all the way until the end, um, and I know he also was able to see his own father beatified. So he was there in his 90s, I believe. Is he yes, the one who punched Ian, Faze, Ian Paisley in the face? He was. Yes. <laughs> and, the, and, yes. And, if, and, and if Otto deserves canonization for nothing else, he should be canonized for that. Um, yeah. There's, that, a, that. there's a few things that he might uh, but deserve. Um, that was just the greatest story in the whole world. But it's so good. <laughs> Well, you know, maybe would you want to try and find that video? Because you know, might as well. Pull I it should up. hang on one second. I'm going to pull this up. Uh, well, I well I talk about um yeah a little bit of what Trevor said. Uh, um, you can pull that up. So one of the, just one uh sort of uh correction, I guess. He, uh, so it was actually Spain that threatened war against the British, I believe. Uh, if the if the British wouldn't let them pick up Zeta mm-hmm. um, and the kids, so just that one thing. But, but yes, that it's a very interesting thing that uh, the Spanish intervention, as well as interesting enough. So Otto also ensured in Amer- when he was in America that Austria was seen as a victim country instead of a basically uh um, you know complicit in uh not in the in the wars of nazi germany as well as he and his brothers or it was either i think his brothers i don't know if it was actually him was part of the austrian resistance uh basically just you know, destroying bridges and stuff like that, and and uh, undermining the uh, the Germans during World War II, and then the but before that, uh, under uh, Engelbert Dolphus and the Patriot Front, it was basically in the works for the restoration of the Austrian. Uh, monarchy or the archduke to be restored his property his property was restored to him the austrian proper or the Habsburgs' property was restored to them uh leading up to the anschluss and uh also he had a bunch of like he was part of the german part like uh he was in berlin a bunch leading up to Hitler's rise to power and he, you know, his interactions with Hitler and stuff like that were uh, very, um, you know, like they, they hated each other. And specifically Hitler named the Anschluss. He named it operation Otto because his point was he was, uh, the Anschluss was mainly just a way of, preventing Otto from being restored hmm. to uh to the to um to into Austria and then Germany confiscated the property of the Habsburgs once again and that 
Nazi loot has not been returned to the Habsburgs even until today. The Austrian government still retains Nazi loot. So what's happening here is Pope John Pope St. John Paul II is speaking in front of the European Parliament. For those of you who don't know who Ian Paisley was, Ian Paisley was a uh, Protestant minister and politician from Northern Ireland, so-called Northern Ireland, who, um, to say it politely, the thing you got to know about Irish Protestants is in the in the north, um, in their in their collective imaginations, the Catholic Church exists as an international criminal conspiracy. It's the nicest way I know how to say it. It's just the, it's it's part of their culture, and it's the I don't know that they'll ever not think that. But anyway, um, he is a politician for uh, this a, another one of uh, Woodrow Wilson's. Uh, brain children tchotchke states northern ireland uh and um he will uh he, he's heckling the pope and i think you can sort of see here uh otto uh let's see if we can see him well he's being okay so there's ian Paisley being escorted out okay there's him holding a sign of something uh, oh, and there's Cranmar. This must be some kind of Protestant video. I don't know what he's saying, but I wish I could. I tried to get the actual video of the punch itself, but well, you can see it a little bit. Just uh, go right. It's it's still at the end. It's or it's near the end. It um, he and John Paul's to... just like yeah, yeah, you loudmouth yeah. idiot, and then <laughs> um. there yeah i think yeah, was, yeah. anyway anyways the point is auto good solid man the auto auto <laughs> takes him out um, and every, yeah. yeah i don't know you may have known this mark but did you know that um john paul II was named after carl that's his carl Martila. no i did not know yep. that so his father served so his father austria um, at the time, part of southern Poland. Uh, my some of my ancestors as well came from mm -hmm. this part of Austria. Um, they're Polish, but Carol's father served in the Austrian army. I don't know if he met Carl as well, but he's very impressed with Emperor Carl. I think uh, he so did. He might have met met Emperor Carl as well in the military, and so he named his son Carol Wojtyla. So, yeah. So that's fascinating. Pope, yeah, I mean. Uh, John Paul II named his own namesake, uh, beatified his own namesake, uh, which is really fascinating. That's beautiful. Yeah, he created I, his own namesake. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How is that process of that canonization going? Do we know? Is there is there is there movement on that? Or, and I know that these things, unless you're a pope, take quite a bit of time. Apparently, if you become the pope, they canonize you on your deathbed. But uh, if, uh, well, if you're one of the last two or three popes, they canonize you on your deathbed. But Well, there are um, at least two miracles. Okay. So they have everything they need. It's all just a matter of popularity with uh, in the Vatican, basically. That well, I was going to ask Trevor how, how he how he got got into this devotion enough to where you felt you wanted to uh dedicate a portion of your craft uh to to the Habsburgs because I have to tell you as somebody 
I'm so new to this. I don't even think, I think I was, I was already in the seminary, uh, like almost like 19 years old before I found out there was such a thing as the Austrian Hungarian empire and didn't even know it was Catholic. I didn't know anything about that. Um, and so I, I came to realize that one of, that the last emperor of Austria was, uh, was beatified probably within the last four or five years. Mm. So how did you come to this devotion and what, what was it about it that impressed you so much that you wanted to dedicate a, a couple of, uh, of your famous Tridentine beers to the Habsburgs? Yeah, absolutely. Mark. So for me, I, I'm also a big, a big history buff. I mean, obviously I think I'm talking on the, on the call here with, with uh, another two here that have a great interest in in history and world war one history and so th that's that's my background um but even i hadn't really known too much about about carl until i was running for uh because i have an interest in politics as well uh when i was 20 i ran for a seat on our village board a contested uh race and i I was really thinking while I was running, I should find a good Catholic saint to imitate who was real, actually lived out their Catholic faith. Cause we have such really poor examples in the United States, as I think everyone's painfully aware, even in our sure. current situation. And that's when really I just stumbled across, across blessed Carl. And I, I wanted to see, you know, is there someone even more, more recent? I mean, there are of course, like today's feast day, St. King Louis the Ninth, but I was even thinking, well, is is there like more really recent examples uh, of good Catholic saints? And uh, that's why I ran into Blessed Carl, and so from there, that's when my my devotion really, really grew. That's about twelve years ago, uh, mm. actually, um, that my devotion to to Carl started, and. Um, yeah, so that that's when I grew, and really, I didn't even know that. Honestly, I didn't really know that much about Empress Zita until the last, you know, eight years or, or so. So I was really big into Carl. Didn't know too much about Zita. Then started know know a little bit more about Zita. Then my wife really has a devotion to Empress Zita. So we ended up naming um, before the brewery stuff. Before we even had a, a beer, we ended up naming our our daughter, our middle daughter, Zita beautiful and uh so that's her first name and then uh our youngest son his name is augustus carl and carl middle name being after blessed carl um so yeah i had, had a real devotion for a long time it really was at first it was on the political side of things as a as a political leader but then really his witness and example as a father and husband since i was married in that time frame as so I had a devotion to him years before I ended up getting married uh, or having uh, children. Now that me that aspect of it means that aspect of his life and his example there also means a lot more to me. So I think it's helped to deepen my devotion as it's been even more meaningful to me. Uh, you know those aspects of his life. Uh, sure. So yeah, so that's really it was a, it was a natural fit when we came to the the beer. Uh, I was like, all right, we got to do a Carl beer. There's For a, sure. There's a Vienna lager. It's a style of beer. We have to do a Carl Vienna lager. So that was the first one uh, that, that we did. And then, of course, we we did our Zeta beer. And um, my wife really wanted a, 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 a high-powered red beer. And so, you know, high alcohol. 
and she was a big she is a big fan of empress zeta and so we're like all right let's do an empress zeta beer that's a red a red ale doesn't really have as much um connection as the uh the vienna lager does um yeah <laughs> to that blessed carl might have the vienna lager but anyway that's our connection uh my connection to blessed carl well you you sent me um not only some beautiful merch recently um uh, but you i also got an opportunity to sample some of your beers and you guys put a lot of crap. I mean, it's a craft and you guys do are very good at what you do. And um, uh, I know and I don't I, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but I there's there's some things in the works to possibly turn Trident Team Brewing from a little mom and pop apostolate into an actual commercial enterprise. How is that going? Yeah, it's you know what? It, it's coming along really good so far slower than i would like i'm really sure. glad that it's really a hobby for me and not a full-time job or else i would be really under the under the gun with this um but yeah so we've made a lot of really good progress and in the last year uh, actually probably the last nine months that's really when my father who's who's our brewmaster who's who's retired from his full-time job that that's when he has really had an interest in let's let's seriously get this off the ground let's get it commercial so we've been in the work looking for um, and we found a, a distributor local just around the chicagoland area um, that is more or less i mean we have to negotiate some things but they're more or less on board to distribute the beer once we produce it uh, and then a brewery that we can partner with uh, so that's that's the important part we're, we're looking at least to start off and brew with an established brewery. So that mm -hmm. doesn't mean selling off, tri, you know, Tridentine or the beers or anything like that, you know, brewing, brewing with them uh, because we can't brew it all out of our house or right. homes. Uh, so the plastic buckets are going to have to give way to some big steel tanks. I think. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, we got the, we got the steel tanks, but they need to be really big steel tanks. Right. We, we can't, um, you know, our, our 15 gallon batches are not going to nearly be enough. So we need to get some, some large batches and whatnot. And so, uh, I think we found a partner. Uh, I won't say say their names yet because we're still working on, on sure. some, some legal deals and whatnot. Um, but in July, we were able to visit a brewery, uh, interestingly enough, also run by not just Catholics, but faithful Catholics, I will say. Um, pray the rosary every day, even carry, carry the rosary around with them at the brewery. And Strong. So it's Strong. great. Nice, nice partnership. Um, you know, hopefully it ends up working out. We can finally ink a deal. We've been working on them with our recipe, scaling it up. It's not, it's not just like you, you hand someone a, a sheet of paper and say, here, here's my recipe. Just, you know, multiply it X, X amount. And there you go. You've got it. It, it has to be, um, not, not completely changed or anything, but reworked so it can get, uh, at a larger scale. Yeah. Um, and so Cause this is been, a bio, it's a biology experiment, essentially. Oh, yeah. This is. And you know, one of the things we were talking, I was, uh, we were talking about this, uh, this movie that's out about uh, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, and you know, I was talking with somebody about nuclear weapons, and I was thinking, you know, uh, we were talking about if you wanted to, a nuclear weapon is so much different than any other type of weapon because you know, if 
in a conventional bomb, you have a chemical explosive. And if you want to increase the yield of the bomb, you just increase the amount of the chemical explosive in the bomb. But a nuclear weapon works very differently. If you change the size of the components, it, it may not go off at all. I mean, it, 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 it so it's all very different in, in science. Is, it works that way, you know, and it's beer. Beer is not uh, beer is a lot like baking right? Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like cooking on a stovetop where you can just taste it as you're doing it. Nope. This needs a little more salt. Once you put it in the oven, it's either going to work out or it's not. You're Uh, you're committed. And then you find out at the end, (laughs) you find out the end, even several, several weeks later, you don't find out till, and we've had that happen before where weeks later, you know, you put in all this effort and then it just tastes horrible. Oh, that's so, frustrating. That's uh, so frustrating. Be, yeah, it's it's an exercise in patience. Um, so that that part's been great. And um, you know, this one brewery has almost like a for anyone familiar with Breaking Bad, they've almost got like their own like Walter White nice. type guy who just does everything. So we've been working with him to you know fine tune the recipe and whatnot. And uh, now just working through some some legal stuff. Um, we still need some. We're working through some licenses, so the the federal government or state governments don't make anything easy. So in the process of getting federal state licenses as well, um, and yeah, just some some final negotiations, you know, with with the brewery and with the distributor. Um, Once we can get that all hammered out, we'll be good to go. We've got a a great uh, you know artist lined up to to do some some more of our artwork on the commercial beer. Uh, So yeah really excited uh you know lord willing you know maybe hopefully it'll still happen here in 2023 that we'll have something on on the shelves uh but i'm really really happy with with where it's at for for what it is for where we started out with which was not an intention to make it commercial that hey there there could be something on a shelf so i will be over the moon if one day i'm able to walk into a store and I see our beer on the shelf. I'll say, you know, that is oh like goodness. the ultimate thing. Yeah, even That'd if that so was exciting. It, it ended, and that was it. Oh man, I'd be so excited. So, already excited with where it's at, and it's just kind of in God's hands. And I don't just say that to just say it. Like, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's fine. Um, but you know, so far, interesting doors have been opening up along the way. So, uh, we'll just see where it goes from here. Well, I have an, I, I'm going to put a link to, uh, to, to, uh, Trident team brewing's web store. They've got some great merch, go pick you up some merch. Um, and there'll be a link to that in the description. Definitely go check that out before we go. There is something about blessed Carl's devotion that is unique that I have noticed. And I want to ask both of you guys, what you think about this? Because I don't have an answer to this, but there's a phenomenon here that I think is worth exploring. You know, there, there are devotions which, like, let's take the devotion to St. Francis. is pretty much ubiquitous throughout the Roman Church, uh, no matter what type of liturgy you have an affinity to or, or where you fall in the liturgy wars or any of that kind of stuff, or even if you have no, no affinity for that at all, everybody loves St. Francis. Blessed Carl of Austria seems to be very popular amongst those who are committed to the restoration of the Roman Rite. Uh, the, there was recently a Blessed Carl of Austria conference that was held in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I wanted to go, couldn't make it. My co-host went. Uh, you guys were there, if I'm not mistaken. Bishop Athanasius Schneider was there, gave a talk. Several prominent 
um, historians and churchmen were there. And there is very much a one-to-one correspondence of people who have a devotion to Blessed Carl and um, an affinity for the restoration of the Roman Rite. Why do you think that is? And feel free to take some time and think about it because I don't have an answer for that, but I kind of think there might be one in somewhere in the details about his life. But tell me what you think. Yeah. So go go ahead, Connor. I was just going to say, who do you want to ask first? Connor, you go first, buddy. You chimed in. Well, we both (laughs) chimed in. I I just chimed in to ask who should chime in first. Um, but if you want me to go, I'll go. I think it's a collapse of fatherhood, the absence of masculinity. Mm. It is is uh, a corruption of the clergy in the same way. You know, I mean, Blessed Charles is basically a modern, I guess, sort of example compared to like St. Joseph. Like St. Joseph is the most classic uh, sure. example of a saint that is a father and you know he he's also his devotion has become a huge thing you know it's grown substantially just in the last century or not yeah last century um and i would say the same thing is tied with blessed charles i think or the abusive nature how the hierarchy can be abusive uh, to faithful Catholics is very much where this lies. Blessed Charles is a example of fatherhood, whether it be fatherhood of sort of a monarch, fatherhood of a family, as well as sort of this this representative as as someone who might guide us to true masculinity and when when there are so few examples amongst the clergy, the uh, the political class, the elites, basically anyone who's in power. There's such a lack of uh, masculinity and fatherhood that, uh, at least it's abusive fatherhood basically for the most part, that is basically a default. When If you're looking for that fatherhood, you're basically going to be looking at the a, the restoration of masculinity within the clergy as well, which sort of brings you to uh, the restoration of the Roman rite in the Latin mass. Well said, Trevor. That's going to be hard hard to beat. Man, counter, counter down pat. Um, I, okay, a couple thoughts. The, the first is in regards to why why predominantly in TLM communities. And I guess the answer is twofold. The first is, I mean, there I know a ton of people who are, are very, very um, fervent Catholics that go to the, the Novus Ordo. But obviously, the, the at least in the U.S., like some of the most fervent people I know that are really faithful, like hardcore Catholics are... are going to the TLM or want to go to the TLM. So I think it makes sense that when, when they see this devotion and they latch on, I mean, we, we take notice of that because that's kind of like 
where a lot of the you know a lot of the growth in the church is. So th- that's one one reason besides mm-hmm. from the obvious reasons that that Connor was giving. Um, well, Trevor, do you agree with me? Or did I miss anything? Or or am I wrong about anything? Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. I I think as well, it's not even as well, like in addition, um, but kind of to further flesh out your point about the fatherhood, it's interesting. The devotion to Carl does overlap a lot with traditional communities, but traditional communities are big in where? France and the U.S., uh, which also don't have monarchs, France no longer, and the U.S. hasn't since George III. So, um, and I think Charles Coulomb brings this this point up too. There's almost like a daddy wound, even on a political mm. level, right? Where, which goes back to Connor's point about fatherhood, that you know we see this leader, and it's almost like something that we want because we haven't, not even necessarily doesn't even necessarily have to be a restoration of a monarchy or the standing up of a monarchy, even though I'm sure that a lot of those same people would want that. But uh, just to have that type of leader again, um, from the political standpoint, you know, something to strive for that. Yeah, it might be, you know, someone like Blessed Carl, it's not like they're all, you know, these type of leaders are all over the place, but it's, it's a possibility to be that holy. I mean, that's why I was drawn to Blessed Carl when I was into politics was because it's like, okay, here's someone who is, you know, really striving for God's will and who's able to do it. You know, it's not that it's this impossibility. So I think people see that and they're very drawn to it that, yes, we can have leaders, um, whether it's political or like Connor was saying in the church, who are holy it's not some impossible thing and so i think in this age of there really being no true leaders people are really drawn to that um so yeah i think connor summarized it great with fatherhood because i think that hit all the notes um that i was hinting at as well i i think that that's a fantastic summary so i i have an addition to what you guys have said because you guys have laid out some great points i've never thought of before especially with regards to fatherhood and leadership and i think that is uh i I think that's also piggybacking or at least an addendum or maybe even a more fleshed out way of saying what what my thoughts on this were were that um going back to world war one you know world war one is really sort of the birth of modern cynicism everything is cynical now right the belief that everything is really motivated just about money. Um, we have tried to project this onto, uh, for example, the when we talk about the United States Civil War. We try to talk about the United States Civil War in terms of pure economics. Everybody there was really just motivated about money. Nobody really cared about the slaves one way or the other. And nobody really cared about slavery or anything like that. And the important thing to think of, and I've heard historians say this, is that you're projecting a post-World War I mentality onto pre-World War I people who were not that cynical about everything. We live in a time now in which everybody and everything is cynical. There is nothing... There, there's no, there are no real ideas out there. Everybody's just in it for the money or just in it for the power or something like that. Um, and we see in here, here you see, okay, so just a, a, for a moment about modernists. Modernists will sometimes like tout St. Francis, for example, uh, and, but he's more of like a mythological figure to them. 
right? Not somebody who is a real historical person, but they like the ideas of France. I mean, you hear this all the time when you hear, for example, uh, James Martin say that Jesus's biggest miracle was gathering crowds together or something like that. Like, have you, I mean, <laughs> but what goodness, about COVID? Gar Garth Brooks can do that. Like, so what? <laughs> I mean, what, what's the big deal there? But what about COVID? What about it? But that's dangerous. You can't have crowds. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Good point. And so everything is cynical now. And, 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 our thinking about saints and things like that in the church is now very, very cynical. You know, uh, what was amazing about uh, Francis is how he is his synodality and how he wanted to journey together with everyone. It's just a bunch of made up crap that isn't real that Francis did. Had, I don't even know if St. Francis knew what synodality meant, not that any of us do either. Okay. But here, finally, in the modern age, in a very cynical time of, uh, and, and in a time which in no one sees a way out of the cynicism, we see an example of somebody who is authentically pious and, and trying to live an authentically holy life. Holiness is is a, is a big thing because I don't get the sense that many modern Catholics really believe it's real. Um, I myself struggled with this idea after the, after the, the, the sex abuse crisis scandal broke in, you know, in the, in the early part of the two thousands, I remember seeing you thinking is holiness even real? Is it, or is it all just BS? Is it all just a marketing scheme? You know, and, and you delve into that cynicism again. There, there are examples in in the modern world, and most of them are from the clergy, like Padre Pio and things like that. But like you said, Connor, we live in an age right now in which most faithful Catholics, um, you know, I think in the past for, for many of us, we revered the church as our institution. Um, now we quite frankly fear it. It's linguistic fog the sheer casualty of its brutal transactions, the, the absolute density of its unconcern. And so we've looked to a layperson who's like us, right? In many ways, not like us, but a layperson who in the midst of, of this horrible war and who was raised by somebody, at least from his father's side, who was not particularly interested in piety or holiness, a holy life, a man who lived an authentically holy life and attained holiness. There's something about that to us in the, in the living through this ecclesiastical crisis um, that I think resonates very deeply with us. And we see something about that as a saint for our times. Um, I know he has not been canonized yet, and I certainly would not presume to do so on this show, but um, I think it's important to realize that for the ancient Catholics who, you know, when I don't know that they saw much of a distinction between the, the blesseds and the saints. I think once you had a devotion, they would call them a saint or something like that. And I, I so I don't, I don't mean to canonize people who are not canonized, certainly, but I think we see a saint for our times and a saint for our situation. And so many times we can get caught up in the politics of everything that's going on in the church and forget about holiness and the pursuit of holiness and 
trying to be holy. Um, one of the things that we've that we've done here on Text Catherine, we haven't done a show in a long time, and we we don't do shows as regularly as we should. But every morning on the show at 5 a.m., Monday through Sunday, we pray the office of louds. And in that in that little 20 minutes of a day, there's no church politics discussed. There's no ripping on Pope Francis. There's no railing against the modernists. I make a, I, I make a point of not doing that. We just pray the, we just pray the hour. And then if I have a little reflection on what we've just prayed, I'll share it with everybody. Um, because I think we, we've, we could lose sight of what our ultimate goal is. And that is to attain holiness and, I'm really impressed with Charles of Austria because he's not just a good guy. He's not just a good leader. He's not just an effective monarch. Okay. I give you another example of a, of a famous Christian who was canonized uh, from this area, although not canonized in the Catholic church was Tsar Nicholas II. Tsar Nicholas II is a saint in the Russian Orthodox church. And, you know, from from everything I've read, he was uh, a, a big supporter and patron of the Orthodox Church and participated in ecclesiastical affairs. I don't have any evidence that he was a particularly wicked or evil man, but pious, pursuing a life of holiness as a, as a, as the main thing that he was doing in his life. Mm, not really, you know. Uh, you could say a lot of cynical things about Tsar Nicholas II, but here in Charles of Austria, I don't know. There's just something authentic about that man and and his devotion. I don't know. That's what landed with me. I think that's spot on, Mark. Oh yes. wait, oh wait. I got. I, here's my co-host. How did it go? Still going. <laughs> Tell him to jump on. Yeah, Tell him going. Tell him to say hi. Tell him we want we want to hear his reason. Tell him to jump. Yeah, on. I want tell, to know. Tell him that we want to hear what he wanted this podcast to be. We want to hear. Oh, he says he's driving home at the moment. I don't know. It's already an hour and twenty five. I don't know if we'll still be on <laughs> at that point. Jason, we love you, man, and and I can't wait till you come back and do a show with us. Um, it's been so great having you guys on. I know we're coming up on an hour and a half, and it's our 10 30 at night. So we're, we're going to call it, but um, Trevor from Trident team brewing Connor from plot lines, by the way, if you guys have not subscribed to plot lines, then I officially will text communicate you. You don't want to get text communicated on this show. It's very serious because <coughs> it is irreversible. Uh, <laughs> and it, and it is very, it's, it's, uh, it's worse than actual excommunication because <laughs> you, you know, you don't want to get kicked off the podcast. But go subscribe to Plot Lines. Go down to the link that's in the description. Go get you some merch from from uh, Trident Team Brewing, and um, you know, God willing, we're going to see them on the shelves. Uh, I, I is it too much to ask that you guys could uh, make a couple of cases for the Texas market? Hey, I, I'd love to be in Texas, Mark. I'd love to get down there. But I've had a lot of people from Texas reach out and say, "Hey." When, when's it going to be down here in the Lone Star State? So, well, see, uh, Texas has not historically been a very craft brewy place, but we've become that in the last, I, I guess some laws changed recently within the last, like, say, 12, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so now there's all kinds of craft beers all over. Just the Houston area has got all these little 
these little craft breweries. One of them is just a satanic operation, and it, they hosted some kind of black mass at their thing. And I, I, I hope they went out of business. But <laughs> I don't even remember what they were called. But um, yeah, so there's all kinds of little craft breweries opening up down here. But it would be great to uh, uh, be able well, to drink drink an ice cold uh, Tridentine beer one of these days. Hey, Make Texas sure summer. you subscribe to uh, Tex Cathedra. Well, yeah, definitely. Yes. <laughs> if you haven't, um, I know we don't do a show as often as we should, and maybe you know, hopefully that will change. I, th a couple of things were happening. One, I was moving. I'm now in a new space. You can kind of see some boxes still behind me. I'm not completely unpacked yet, uh, but uh, we're in a much better situation here. So hopefully, we'll be able to do some more shows. And then uh, Jason's got uh, Jason's got kids and things like that. And they're into sports and it's summertime and things like that. So they'll be getting, they'll be getting their butts back to school pretty soon. And then he can devote his time to his true vocation, which is the <laughs> podcast. Right? Well, um, quality over right. quantity. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, thanks guys for coming on. And uh, again, I can't wait to, to talk to you guys more on another topic. And uh, I, 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 the history has been fantastic. And I'd love to do a whole show on, on Russia. I'd love to do a show on Serbian nationalism because that's a big topic we could talk a little bit about, I'm sure. Um, this whole World War One. I've been thinking so much about this recently because it was such a horrifying event uh and and just paved the way for even more horrifying events that would come in its wake so by the by the grace of god let us escape um our, our worldly ideologies and our and our um our bloodlust and and turn away from sin and uh embrace christ as the the prince of peace and the king of kings uh thank you so much for joining us and y'all have a great evening god bless you god bless you too mark mm -hmm.